0: on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your guide to the whitetail woods. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel for the stand, saddle, or blind. First Light, go farther, stay longer. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome
1: to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. And this week on the show, I'm joined by Sean Luchtel of Heartland Bowhunter to dive deep into the four-year hunt for a deer he called Caesar. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Life. This week we are continuing our Big Buck Breakdown series in which we are chatting with hunters who have been in the midst of years long up and down hunts for one specific buck. We're trying to get into the minds of these people who have dedicated themselves to chasing after, to studying, to learning, to patterning, to uh, obsessing in one way or another over a deer and putting all their energy behind it, trying to figure that deer out and getting a shot at it. We've chatted with a couple hunters already with great stories. We've learned some interesting things. We've got to follow along with their sagas, and today we're continuing that with a story from Sean Luckdell. Sean is a Missouri bow hunter. He's a guy that probably a lot of you are familiar with. We've had him on the show in the past. He's one of the co-hosts and founders of Heartland Hunter. Terrific show. Great work they've been doing over the years, and we have a story today of a deer that Sean called Caesar. And it's a story that he recently shared this past fall on their YouTube channel in a really great film or episode, whatever you want to call it. Uh, But I wanted to peel back the layers of this story, get deeper into it, get deeper into his mindset, figure out what he was thinking about throughout this hunt, how he handled those ups and downs and speed bumps along the way, how he made decisions, you know, what was he thinking when he did this thing and that thing and when the buck did this, how did he react to it? I want to know the nitty gritty. I think that's an interesting way that we can learn more as hunters from these first-hand accounts. So that's the game plan today. I don't want to beat around the bushes at all. I just want to get into this story because it's a good one. So without any further ado, here's Sean Luchtel of Heartland Bowhunter with the story of Caesar. All right, back with me on the show. We've got Sean Luchtel. Sean, welcome back. Hey, thanks for
2: having me. I think it's probably been about I don't know, maybe was it a year ago that we last spoke, I think, on something,
1: here? Something like that, yeah. Um, and I think, did you end up coming on Fresh Radio this year with Casey or Tyler at all? Or was that last year, last time you were a, a guest on that too?
2: I believe it was last year. I don't think it was. I know it wasn't this past fall.
1: Okay, then it must have been, I think Mike maybe came on to talk about Ohio or Colorado or something like that. Yeah, um, definitely
2: Mike. Yep.
1: Well, it's it's always good to get to catch up, especially this time of year, like ATA. I was just telling someone the other day about, um, one of the times way back in the day when we were all young at ATA, and um, I I think you were here for this night, Sean. But if you weren't, tell me. But I was just telling someone the story of, you know, like 2009 or 10 or something at ATA, and I was at, you know, I don't know, a restaurant or a bar, and. Brian Kraft was there, Mike was there. I'm pretty sure you were there.
2: And, I was there, yeah.
1: Okay, so we're sitting there talking, yeah. and someone, you know, asked the question like, "Oh, where, where's everybody staying tonight?" And you guys are like, "Oh, we're at this hotel." And Brian's like, oh, "I'm at this hotel." And then it gets to me. I'm like, "Well, I'm sleeping in the back of my wife's Ford Focus in the parking garage." <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, yeah. That that night Brian insisted that I not sleep in the car and he got a cot and put it in his hotel room and let me stay in his in his hotel room. But it, it was the story that came to mind when I was thinking the other day about how far things have come since the early days when I couldn't even afford a hotel room. So good memories, times. I
2: was before right before we started this, that was that crossed my mind like well first off it crossed my mind like, huh, Mark's not at ATA. I'm not at ATA right now. I wonder uh-huh. You know, well, and then i was thinking of that exact time but i had forgotten the part um about you sleeping in your car but as soon as you said that i i i remember that and <laughs> yeah we have definitely all come a long way it's crazy
1: yeah it's pretty wild <laughs> but uh we're still chugging along still obsessed with deer and uh we've got slightly better sleeping accommodations so uh we're yeah. heading in the right direction but, yeah. uh, but yeah, this is a great excuse to get to talk again and catch up because we're doing this series, as you know, um, covering these, you know, these exceptional long hunts for specific bucks. And you had a great story that you guys shared recently over in your YouTube channel about this hunt you had for a buck called Caesar, um, that lasted, you know, years long, you and your dad getting to know this deer. And I, I love that film you put together. And I thought this would be a really interesting story to to dive even deeper into because you guys did a great job of, you know, showing that visually. Um, mm-hmm. But there's so many questions I had along the way about what was going on in your mind. You know, how did you make this decision or that one? What were you thinking on this day? You know, how did all this stuff build up? So so that's what I was hoping to do today if you're down for it is to, is to go through that story again and then pick it apart, you know, decision by decision and really see what we can learn about, you know, how you were able to figure this deer out, how you approached the hunt, uh, and you know, what you think ultimately led to that success. So, so that's my hope for today. Does that, does that sound good?
2: Yeah, that's, that sounds great. I'm glad that we're doing this. Um, it is a 50 minute long episode or film if you would call it. Um, but yeah, there's, there's only so much that we can fit into there. There's obviously not every aspect of aspect of, um, what goes into this that's that's captured in that film um, that just isn't physically possible. And like you said, the things that are going through my mind um, definitely aren't aren't all covered in that in that film. So I'm happy to do this.
1: Yeah, it's amazing too. Like 50 minutes is a long, you know, online video. Like that's basically sure. like like a like a movie. And still, right. and still, you can only get the tiniest little bit, you know, of the story and everything that actually happened in there. It's so hard to convey, you know hours and hours and weeks and weeks and years of this stuff into this little bite-sized chunk. I am always frustrated when I'm trying to do that and you can never get it out there in a complete way that tells the entire story. You just kind of have to like deliver a sense of it. Um, so it's kind of fun to get to dive in further with this kind of thing. So I guess to, to start Sean, if people haven't seen the film, I kind of want to get a picture for them in their mind of, of what this deer is all about just so they have like an image as we start, you know, exploring the story. Can you paint a picture for me of this deer of, you know, his age, his body size, what does antlers look like, you know, any defining characteristics just so, so we've got that image as we go. How would you describe this deer you called Caesar?
2: Yeah. So Caesar, we, we nicknamed
1: him that, um,
2: when he was gosh, two and a half. Um, and at the time I thought he was three and a half looking back, Through all the photos and once all of our data has been gathered over the years, um, we came to the conclusion that he was, in fact, only two and a half when we first um, started really taking note of him. And I don't know, his rack was very similar to another buck, which we ended up calling Twin 10. So as both of these bucks were at a young age, they looked very similar, just basically typical 10s at the time. And... I mean their racks looked like a crown and so he was more distinguishable from tw- a little more distinguishable from twin 10 because his brows curled but with his rack just looking like a typical crown i was like well i don't really want to call him the king um i don't really want to call him prince or anything like that because i've already I had already nicknamed a buck prince and whatnot and the thought of just like the king or whatever you want to call it the ruler of the area caesar came to mind i was like oh, i'll call him that caesar sounds great and so Really, he just had a fairly typical 10-point rack at a young age with these um, very distinguishable curled brows that kind of curled outward a little bit. And um, that was obviously the most distinguishable um, characteristic of his rack throughout um, the span of his life, up until I I shot him at six and a half years old.
1: Yeah. And, like, uh, would you say, I mean, he's super heavy. He's... Mm not crazy wide, but just like kind of like I, don't, I hesitate to say tight, but like a, a tall, it, a, a taller, taller and slightly tighter and heavy is kind of how I would like imagine him. And then those awesome brow tines. Um mm-hmm. Is that about right? Would you say? Yeah,
2: he was actually tight. You're not taking away from him. He was like, I think 15 and a half inches wide, oh, um, yeah, which okay. still kind of shocked me. Um, but after, so we didn't even cover this in the film um, after, I'd killed him and everything. We gutted him and then hung him up. And where we hang him up, I have a scale attached to that, and we weigh every every buck that we shoot. Well, every deer for that for that matter, and um, record the weight. Um, and gutted. And This is a. Uh, I think I killed him on October 17th. I believe that was the date. Maybe the 18th. Can't remember one of those two days. But anyways, a mid to late October buck. Um, typically, they're pretty well rounded out on um, peak weight for the fall and. He weighed, I think, in the one, eighties. I want to say I was shocked. So he was a for a six and a half year old buck, um, at almost peak weight of the fall. He was he was pretty um, pretty lightweight. Short body, yeah. and that's huh. that's why. So I believe that's what made his rack look even bigger than it really was. Um, was just because he had a smaller body, and um, I think it just goes to show, you know, like not every buck um, it's just going to be like this giant 250 pound animal. Um, and, uh, they're just, I mean, they're just like humans. Some, some humans have genetics to be bigger bodied. Some humans like myself are a little smaller framed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, that's true. But he, he's, he's an impressive animal. I mean, he's st- even though without that massive, massive body, like when you see him on film, I'm sure in person, he still was just, a cool looking deer. I mean, an absolute mature specimen of a buck. Um, yeah. I mean, the kind that you, you dream about for sure. Um, I, I don't, did you guys score the deer? Not that score really matters all that much, but I mean, just for a sense of this is, if I were looking at this buck, I'd say it was like a 160 type category buck or maybe bigger. Uh,
2: yeah, we, did, we did. Um, we scored him, um, afterwards. Um, uh, and so like my biggest white tail to, to date, was um, a buck. Yeah, I'm. I know you're familiar with Mark. Others may not be that we call Junior. Oh yeah. Uh, that I'd killed back in. Gosh. I don't remember. I think it was like 2009, 2010, or yeah, 2010. Uh, he scored 173. Well, um, I said this right before scoring Caesar. I, I I mentioned exactly what I just said, and so we scored him, and Caesar scored 173. I didn't. You know, like it's just me rough scoring. It's not an official score and I didn't score him or anything like that. Didn't care if he was above or, or below, but it's funny that they were pretty much right at the same, same, uh, same number. So yeah, he was right at 173 right. in that,
1: that's crazy. And I guess I do remember that was at the very end of the episode. I think you guys had that little clip. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, he's a heck of a deer. Um, so uh, one thing more before we kind of get into the story, um, without, giving away like specifics of the story. I'm just curious, like for you, what made this hunt and story so exceptional? Like, I think you said somewhere, whether it was on the episode or on Instagram or something, like this was maybe, you know, the the greatest hunt of your life or the greatest story or, or something like that. I feel like I remember you, you know, categorizing this in that kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, what about this deer or hunt or the story makes it so special? Why did this stand out above, you know, the the so many other deer you've hunted in the past. What made this one extra special? Why is this worth diving into like this?
2: Yeah. So, um, you know, over the years we've had, um, a handful of opportunities to actually build stories with, um, certain bucks that we've hunted over the, over the years. And that's what makes this one so much more special is because of how long it went on. Um, you know, we, we debated shooting him when he was four and a half. We, we really try our best to, um, to let the bucks go, um, with, hopes that they'll make it to five and a half. Very, very few do. Um, but just for the sheer fact of them actually reaching their full potential at five and a half or greater, um, is, is the reason that we do so. And we had full intentions when he reached five and a half to shoot him. Um, it just didn't pan out. Um, he had kind of just gotten off of his regular routine, obviously at the age of five and a half, they've pretty well figured things out and are very intelligent. And I think that was, uh, the main reason we only had one kind of opportunity out of my dad almost ended up shooting him um, during the rut. Um, he had rattled him in, didn't um, ex- even expect him to be there. Um, we were on the other side of the farm, which we had never seen or um, had photos of him on that portion of the farm. And he came running in basically and um, kind of snuck up on us as well and just caught us off guard. And it was a quick thing where he almost had a shot use a full draw didn't take the shot and that was kind of the end of it so it didn't happen at five and a half um and ended up shooting him at six and a half but the story in itself just with how many encounters from the age of two and a half all the way up until um six and a half the sheds the work um just constant thought process putting all the puzzle pieces together up until the end of the story and it ending with um a great shot and seeing him fall in sight was just I mean, that was it was the picture perfect story that I could I mean, if I had to draw one up, that's that's how it would have would have gone. Um, But with that being said, there was obviously a pile of highs and lows in between, um, really mainly with um, trail camera photos and whatnot. But so uh, I wasn't really thinking we were going to go into this yet, but I might as well jump into it Um, when he was. Well, so throughout his entire lifespan that I'm aware of from two and a half to up until I killed him. Well, up until this summer, I pretty much had photos of him all the time um, when he had a rack on his head. If he didn't have a rack, he was obviously very hard to distinguish from the other bucks. But when he had a rack on his head, I he was pretty much there I, I, from summer till the time that he dropped his antlers in the winter. And this summer, um, I put out cameras like I always do, um, late June, early July in that time period. And I was specifically targeting the area that he had spent um his life in that i was aware of up until that point so i I loaded up cameras on that part of the farm and i i wasn't getting him i went all the way into august past, and then we're into september and i'm like okay this deer must be dead um in missouri where our farm is we are not allowed to put out any sort of bait or minerals or anything like that to attract deer you can use water um, but you cannot use any sort of mineral or grain or anything like that to attract deer. So getting photos of them up close can be difficult. Um, very similar to the regulations in, 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 Illinois, but still I had not had issues of getting pictures of bucks before, especially him in the summertime. And I still had nothing going into the season. And I, at that point I was fairly confident that he had somehow died. Um, wouldn't, wasn't sure exactly how, maybe it was a car, maybe it was coyotes, maybe it was disease, whatever. Um. I didn't have anything, and so September passes, and I'm like, okay, he's for sure gone, dead. Time and to move on. Yeah, exactly, and so there was another deer that I was kind of targeting and wasn't really very familiar with the buck, and so um, we were kind of hunting that that part of the farm, and um, thankfully, um, while I was there, I, um, at the farm, I, so hims are amazing, and also i feel like a double double double-edged sword in in some instances i got photos of him first photos of him i think october 6th or something like that and um yeah that was i remember like i'm sure most of you guys that have cell cams can relate i woke (laughs) up in the middle of the night and looked at my phone which is the worst thing you can do because Uh it wakes you up and um got photos of him and that was really the start of of the hunt for him this year, like the real start. And, and then yeah,
1: did you, did you fall back asleep after that? Or were you so jacked that you were up for the next oh, few hours?
2: Yeah, I was awake, like so far awake after that. <laughs> I think it probably took me an, an hour or two to fall back asleep. And yeah. so Chandler, the guy that hunts with me and films with me, um, throughout the fall, <laughs> he's in the room next to me sleeping. I sent it to him I don't think I, it didn't wake him up, but I just remember sending it to him and be like, Oh man, I can't wait till he sees this. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah,
1: oh, that's it, incredible! It was,
2: yeah. So anyhow, that was very long winded. But to answer your question, yeah, this story was just filled with tons of highs and lows, and um, basically, I guess you would say four years of, of history with the buck. Um, going on that
1: long just
2: made it so special.
1: Yeah, yeah, I can, I can imagine. Well, let's get let's get back to the beginning. Let's start it out when you you know first notice this buck like when did this deer become noticeable it sounds like when he was two and a half that first year can you tell us a little bit about what that year was with him you know i'm, I'm assuming you noticed like a high potential deer like oh man he's a cool deer we're not going to target him uh but can you tell me a little bit about what that first year was like and uh you know what happened with him
2: yeah so at two and a half uh i was um i i i didn't see him until late season but i had photos of him joking camera photos of him through the rut and then into late season and that was when i uh, had started to well that's when i named him and then that late season when we were hunting to, uh standing bean field um that was when we first actually laid eyes on him in person and um you can see it in the film and he was out there just feeding on standing beans at a distance. I think we saw him twice that that late season, and then um, which is yeah, it's the same field that I ended up killing him in, um, just across the field on the other side. And uh, so that was yeah, that was the first actual documented um, experience with him was in, late season in 2018.
1: So did you know like right then like oh man this is gonna be a good one we need to keep tabs on him or at that point was he still kind of an average nondescript deer that, you know, there were several other young bucks that were kind of just like him. And, you know, did, did, I guess what I'm trying to say is, did he stand out and was he on your mind that off season already? Or was he just like another one of, you know, a handful of young deer that weren't yet to that
2: point? Um, yeah, that's a great question. So yeah, he was definitely on my mind, but I, I have also learned that, um, all like tr- to try not to get my hopes up. I don't focus too much on a, on a two or three year old. I mean, I do, but I don't, I don't, I don't heavily think about it too much just because there's an abundance of two-year-olds then there's a less abundance of three-year-olds. And then as it goes up, you know, clearly there's far less, you know, as they get older. Um, And so with there being quite a few two-year-olds, I definitely noticed him, which is why I named him. Um, And for the most part, a lot of the two-year-olds, I'll just think up some silly, dumb name, like, I don't know, Short Brow 8, Short, you know, (laughs) uh, Split G2... 10 or eight or whatever like that just quick names because there's so many of them. Um, but yes, if they're somewhat special, I'll, 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 I'll kind of come up with a more distinguishable name and, um, definitely keep them in the back of my mind. But I try not to get my hopes up just because I've I've learned over the years that, uh, it's, it's very often that the deer don't, a lot of bucks just don't end up making it to maturity. And so,
1: Yeah. yeah. Did you find his sheds that next spring? That's a
2: great question. I don't think I did. I don't fully remember, um, but I don't think that I did, uh, at two and a half. And if I did, I, I have them somewhere stashed away <laughs> in a pile of shit.
1: <laughs> okay. So unsure on the sheds, uh, yeah. as a three year old, then the next year, um, at this point, you know, was he doing the same thing? Did you see him in that same area? Was he more or less visible? What was basically the three-year-old story with him? Because, again, I'm assuming he's not a targetable deer, but he's still like one that you're keeping tabs on, right?
2: Yeah, so same, pretty much the same story for the most part. He was actually um, very seldom um, did I get too many photos of him. I had him throughout the year, but it was pretty rare, you know, every few weeks at least. Um, and then we ended up seeing him one time in person uh late season uh that that fall as, as a three and a half year old and um that's also in the film but um yeah and at that point i did think he was four and a half uh, this wasn't until i believe until yeah until he was actually four and a half to where i was like oh i thought he was five this year but really and the reason being him standing next to a five and a half year old buck twin ten the buck that looked similar to him um you could see the body size and just the overall characteristics of their body shape and everything that he was clearly a year younger um at least in my opinion I I you know I never did take the the jawbone out and have it um you know fully aged but um this is all guesstimate I just believe that at that time he was he was um only four and a half um the following year but yes when he was three and a half years old I only saw him one time and um had photos of him sporadically throughout the fall
1: Okay. So that that's interesting then though, because you thought he was four and a half that year. So I'm assuming then you were thinking like, all right, next year I'm going to target him as a five and a half year old. So at this point, like, were you starting to, at least for me, if I, if there's a deer that's one year away from me targeting him, I'm uh-huh. really paying attention to him now. And I'm really yeah. thinking about, okay, what's he doing now that I can take advantage of next year? Um, all that kind of stuff. So When you thought he was a four and a half year old, did you start doing anything differently to try to better keep tabs on him? Did you, you know, have more cameras out in the area he was living, particularly to try to keep tabs on him? Or did you stay out of his area because you didn't want to push into a neighbor's and get him killed or or anything? Were you trying to kill, you know, the big bully buck, the, the twin 10 or something like that because you wanted to open up a spot for him to spend more time? These are some of the things I sometimes thinking about when there's like an up and comer did any of that play into your strategy on that year?
2: Mm -hmm, Absolutely. So yes, he was sharing the same portion, um, core area of the farm that twin 10 was as well. And so twin 10 throughout those years, that twin 10 and Caesar were alive together there. Twin 10 was always a little bit bigger, had more mass, um, even longer brows, just taller G2, just a bigger, bigger buck. And, um, at that point, we were that year as Caesar was four and a half um at the time I'm thinking he's five and a half, we were targeting mainly twin ten. I, I was like, man, twin ten is just bigger he's just he's there more often, like this is his spot like, yes, I'm keeping tabs on Caesar as well, but it was already loaded up for you know with cameras and whatnot and strategy for twin ten, so it's like, well, one or the other, but you know it preferably i'd rather we would rather shoot twin ten and Um, you know, we didn't, we hunted some, um, for twin 10. I ended up having an encounter with him, um, around Halloween, but I did not see Caesar. Um, I had photos of him in there, but I never ended up laying eyes on him. And then the rut came and basically had kind of passed rifle season even passed. And fortunately I have no idea how both of those bucks survived through rifle season because, you know, I know that they lived on the farm, but there is no way that they did not step foot off because there'd be days on end that I wouldn't get photos of them, and, and they were living close to the border anyways. Um, so they for sure had surrounding hunting pressure, but they made it through. And at that point we had gone in to hunt, um, to hunt twin 10. And I did tell my dad when the hunt started, I was like, there's a good chance that Caesar could come in here. Like it's your call, whatever you want to do. Like if you want to shoot him, shoot him. Well, sure enough, Caesar came in this so this was just after thanksgiving i believe and um so the rut was pretty much at we're at the tail end of the rut so they were there basically starting to refuel but yet still checking does and caesar came out at like 45 and was feeding and um you know again i told him like it's it's your hunt your call you shoot him if you want and he's like ah let's just see what happens he's at 45 like i don't i don't really want to shoot um And looking at him now, like, yeah, he looks really big, but it would be cool to see him since he's made it through rifle scenes. It'd be great to see him next year. And then as he waited, twin 10 ended up coming in and that's a part of the, the film as well. And he ends up killing twin 10. Um, and seeing them side by side was really the deciding factor where we were like basically checking ourselves like, okay, he doesn't really look like he's five and a half compared to twin 10, twin 10 just dwarfs him. Um, He's made it this far. You just killed your biggest buck to date, Dad. Like I personally had already shot a deer. Like, why don't we just let him go and see see what happens next year? Um, and, you know, making it to five and a half. And so that was that was a deciding factor to really, really that where we were like, okay, he's not as old as we thought he was. Um, let's see what what happens if he can make it the rest of this year and going into the next fall to be five and a half.
1: Yeah. So then that would have been, was this? What year was that story you just described?
2: That would have been the fall of 2020.
1: Okay. So 2020, you guys see him, but don't need to target him because of twin 10 getting killed and all that kind of stuff. So now heading into 2021, Caesar must've been like, you know, top, top of your mind for sure. He's the big dog. Um, what, did you do in the off season with that buck in mind? Were there any changes to your scouting or shed hunting or anything to try to like to try to kind of narrow in on him and really figure him out now? Was there anything like that where you were trying to put the specific pieces for him? You know, it went from being like he's one of several to now like he's the guy. What did you do then given that?
2: Yeah. um, So the game plan was pretty well similar to the year before where I'd already had, um, cameras pretty much loaded up on that side of the farm. Um, I had gone in that, um, March and burned the timber where he spent the most, most of his time that I was aware of, um, on that side of the farm with hopes to just help enhance bedding, um, and, and forage throughout the woods and just have better native growth just to, in hopes to keep him there, um, the best that I, that I possibly could, uh, I did pick up one of his sheds, um, and then my mom and dad were around, I think, after that, and ended up driving by another, the other side, and it was chewed up really bad from squirrels, so we did end up getting both sides then, um, but, um, anyhow, yeah, so the game plan was about the same, just trying to enhance habitat and, um, plant a couple staging plots, which were already there, but just try to make them the best that we possibly could. And then um, the destination food sources, the field that I that I ended up killing him in, which that was all always a part of the game plan was like, all right, look, here's the timber where we feel he spends the majority of his time. Here's like some food plots in between before he gets there. And then the destination food sources, this Ag field here where we where we often see him um, and had seen him in the years past. Um, so that that was really the game plan. And then if it's the rut, it's like, all right, it's a guessing game. We, we know like the, the main area he spends his time for the most part, we can just dive in and, and hunt him with, um, you know, the best wins possible or the, the winds that are given in, in that area and in hopes that we can get him to come by.
1: Okay. So c- can you describe for me a little bit about like the habitat where he was kind of calling home, like based on what you were seeing there? I mean, I know you described destination food, transition food, and then some timber, um, can you can you just tell me more specifically like what is this timber or bedding area like why was he in this bedding area, what made it the place he was at uh and then what were what was in these food plots in that destination field that that led him to making this zone in his core
2: yeah, so the timber where we would often find his sheds um in the years prior to killing him um is really um uh, well. I would say that it's it it it's been poorly managed over the years. Um, we've had the farm, I think, for 10 years. And then prior to that, um, at some point in the last, I don't know, like 70 years, there were it was definitely some form of livestock. I would assume cows on there. Um, you could tell because of like invasive species such as like multiflora rows and, and whatnot. And then the over, um, really like there's just over competition with trees. There's a ton of small trees in there. Um, that need to be cut out, and that's part of a program that we're in right now where we will perform a timber stand improvement. But my game plan with um, out actually going in there and cutting trees has been to run fire through there. And if I can get a hot enough fire through there, I've actually been able to kill some of those those um, small diameter trees, and that's actually performed a sense of TSI in itself, like knocking back some of the trees so that there's less competition getting more sunlight to the forest floor, which increases growth. Um, you have native forbs that will, will come in, and that just creates better habitat for not only deer, but also for all sorts of wildlife. But it creates ground cover and food for the deer. So that was my objective at that in that portion of the farm. Um, so that was where I was believing that he spent most of his time bedding. And then from there, he could either travel straight to the um destination food source um and in doing so he would pass through like an area that was a mixture it was almost it's really like a savannah so like a mixture of some trees warm season grasses and like um smaller growth like um maybe like some small plum thickets and whatnot so he could go there um maybe stage up there or even bed there i guess if he wanted and then head right out into the field or he could kind of dip down into the valley and go towards um some uh, staging plots that we have. And we really are, our theory with those is we just rotate them. So we may have clover in there for two to three years, and then we'll rotate it out and do like a fall blend Nebraska plot for a year and then back to clover again. And so um, I want to say we put it into clover three years ago. uh, And so he really only spent one year of, his past the past four years in there when there was brassicas and so mainly it was it was always clover when he would travel through there and so he may hit that before he would go to the the destination food source which was either soybeans or corn depending on the, the crop rotation of the year.
1: Okay. And was the the destination, like when you talk about a destination food source, how big are we talking, you know would qualify something as destination are we talking like a couple acres or is this like a big big farm Uh, field
2: yeah this is probably like a i think like 17 to 20 acre um ag field okay and we would all i you can see in the film as well um every late season we'll leave like maybe a couple acres of that ag standing for specifically for the deer
0: For all things auto, do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater.
1: We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. So, 2021. You've got that whole Habitat, you know, plan in place. It's looking good. uh, I'm assuming... You had cameras out in the summer to get a sense of whether he was back or not and what he was doing. What's your, what's your camera strategy look like in this part of the farm? When you know there's a deer like this, that you know, well, you're hoping to get back on him. Um, do you, do you put your cameras out in the same places every single year or did you do anything unique because of what you already knew about him?
2: Yeah. So having, um, 10 years of history on the farm, I have a, well, up to that point, I guess it would have been eight. Um, I had a pretty good idea of you know deer movement um and i've pretty well i feel like tried almost everything with camera positions i've i've got things keyed in pretty well i believe as far as where i'm going to put my cameras um so going into it yeah there wasn't too much um that i had tried differently in in that that summer to to differentiate myself from a few years the few years past um, to get get deer on camera um and not with not being able to put anything out in front of them i i have their travel corridors their their pinch points narrowed down pretty well i believe and then maybe i I might try like a a water source like a a small pond or something like that um but yeah i i have i had yeah the uh the little pinch points keyed in on pretty well um to try to get him in the summer and i'm sitting here on my computer right now looking back at those photos, um, of the summer of 2021. And I did have him in July. Um, I don't believe I had any daylight of him, but that usually doesn't discourage me too much just because, I mean, I'm not hunting during the summer anyways. Um, And and that would always change anyways, going into the fall. I knew that like September, October rolls around. I would often always get him in daylight. So.
1: And do you shift your cameras to new spots once you get into the fall or is it yeah, you know, the same general spots? Cause it's more terrain, pinch points, that kind of stuff.
2: Uh, yeah, it's pretty well for the most part, the same spots until they start laying down, like heavily laying down active scrapes all the time. And that's when, um, uh, that's when I would, uh, would shift some cameras over to those spots. And that was, that would typically be the deciding factor on, on where he was at and what he was doing by moving my cameras onto scrapes. And I, I typically always get him on those. That would be the, the most active place to get pictures or, or of, uh, of Caesar.
1: All right. You're hunting them now, 2021, the season opens. What was your strategy? Did you have like a, like coming into the year? Did you have something in mind? Like, man, I think based on what I've learned over the past couple of years, I'm going to have my best chance at this time or these two times or anything like that. Or were you kind of just going to like start the season and hope to get a visual or pictures or something?
2: Yeah. So, I'm sorry, you said t- going into this past fall,
1: 2022? I guess I was thinking 2021, right? Okay. Isn't this, isn't this, right? Because you hunted him 2021 and then... Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: So 2021, you're right, at five and a half, yeah. So, sorry, can you repeat the question?
1: Yeah, it's okay. So this would be the year before you killed him. Uh-huh. And you were saying you had pictures of him in the summer. And now we're heading into the hunting season. And I'm uh-huh. curious, you know, what your game plan was that year. Did you... Did you have yeah. something unique in mind based on his historical patterns or anything, or was it just kind of a fly by the seat of your pants? Hope he shows up on camera and then move in.
2: Yeah, and so I had gotten him through the summer, um,
1: but my yeah my plan
2: was to really just stick to his core area, just like like he had done with with Twin Ten. But now that my my hopes and my beliefs were like, well, now that Twin Ten's gone, like he is going to for sure roll the roost. This shouldn't be difficult, I don't think um, to, to key in on him. And yeah, we were going to heavily rely on those staging plots. And then as he started to hit scrapes and whatnot, I would try to hunt, uh, more on scrape lines. And then, you know, I, I, I don't enjoy like letting, I, I, my, my full intentions are not to let a deer get to the rut because I do believe they're much harder to kill oftentimes during the rut on a farm that you're familiar with them on, because then at that point, they have left their pattern and it's really just a guessing game and it turns into a scramble. I feel like you don't, you know, you, he, he, you would think that he's going to be right here, but he's completely on the other side of the farm or something like that, or on someone else's property at that point, because he's not, he's not too interested in hitting scrapes or doing his regular thing. He's more worried about finding a doe. So really my, yeah, my plan was to key in on those, those staging plots. Um, And then, uh, if he made it to October, my plan was to, to try to hunt him, um, just on scrape lines.
1: So what ended up happening? How did that, how did those early hunts go?
2: They didn't pan out. He, he, (laughs) he turned into a five and a half year old buck and and his plans changed. (laughs) Funny how they do that. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Like it, it, it never fails. Well, very seldom does it fail, but for the most part, a deer I feel like you know those those early years in his life. You get him patterned really well. You know what he's doing for the most part. And then as he hits maturity, he there's a reason that he's mature now, and his plans change. And he's he's definitely smarter. And things don't happen to be the exact same very often. Sometimes they do on some bucks. It seems like, but more often than not, they're they've changed their ways, and they're much
1: much harder to kill. What do you do in that kind of situation where you you have? A buck that seemed to be on a, uh, an understandable pattern of some kind of, of some kind. And now he hits maturity and he's not showing up. You don't know what he's doing necessarily. How do you try to refine him or reconfigure your strategy to, to try to get on him? What, what were, what were you trying to do to, to take the next step?
2: Um, strategize, um, based on weather patterns and that's, that's really I feel like the deciding factor like we often I feel like you know we have all this history built up I'm like oh yeah we're gonna I'm just gonna hunt him hard and get in there and do the same thing that you know I'm gonna be there because he was there in years past all the time and that it's gonna work out well I feel like if you sit back um, strategize focus on the weather only hunt when it's when you feel like it's truly right and you have your best, absolute best chance uh I feel like that's really the you're you're placing your odds um in favor of killing him if you actually sit back and wait and and, and do things right. Um, Hunt less, really, and uh, just focus on, on, uh, you know, maybe a post-cold front um, to get him. And that was really my my strategy that year. Still didn't pan out um, because we ended up really only having one encounter with him. Uh, That would have been during the rut, and we were on the other side of the farm. So I never saw him early season in person. Um, never had an encounter with him in October and then November rolls around and we were on the other side of the farm hunting. My dad and I were, I was filming him and, uh, hunting another buck and he rattled in Caesar. And that was the only encounter in person that we had with him. I think that I did end up seeing him late season, but never got video footage of him. But at that point it was like right at the tail end of the season. And, you know, it didn't, that was, that was kind of it. So anyhow, during the rut was the only real like close encounter that we had with him.
1: So do you have any idea what he was doing? You know, what, how did he, did he, was he still on camera all the time? Just at night? So did he become nocturnal in your particular very, area or was it very, he- very,
2: very nocturnal? Um, for the most part. And I only had a handful of, um, photos of him in the, in the, in daylight in the middle of the farm, which was very weird. So everything up until that point had always been on one side of the farm. And I mean, I, there was no doubt in my mind that he was traveling off, you know, I never actually saw him do that, but I was like, I mean, he has to be where he's at, like he has to be leaving the farm and going to neighboring properties. And, um, so up until that point I was thinking, oh, he's on this side of the farm. Well, it was almost as if his, his, um, core area had shifted and moved more towards the center of the farm, basically just like right there in the middle of all of it. And that was um, not too far from where we ended up having that encounter. And and so I don't know if like his core area shrank, it just shifted or what it was, but he was, he wasn't spending as much time on the the side of the farm that we were always getting him. He was more in the very center of it, which was fine. That's great. (laughs) Not complaining. Um, But it, it did throw us off some for
1: sure. Yeah. Um, what, what are you, what were you noticing, I guess, as the year progressed and you're seeing pictures of him, his, his range kind of shifted. What were you noticing, you know, heading into the end of the year, if anything at all that you thought might be, you know, useful coming into the new year. Cause you only saw him the one time, but you were getting pictures of him. You're starting to kind of refigure how he shifted. Um, moving into 2020, 2022 as that year was ending Did you have, were you giving up hope on him or were you thinking, Uh, oh man, we're going to, we're going to figure out his new thing and we're still in on it.
2: It's funny. So, um, as I've aged with, with my whitetail hunting, I don't know, man, I, I, uh, (laughs) I, I almost enjoy watching the deer grow up. I do enjoy it more than I do actually even killing them. Like it's weird, but I like, it's almost like, oh man, if he goes one more year, it'll be cool to see what happens. So Since he had made it to the end of the season, basically, uh, as a five and a half year old, like, you know, with, you only have a few weeks left. I almost start to I do. I really just write it off. I'm like, well, yeah, like if, if he waltzed right in right in front of me, of course, I'm going to shoot him. But like, I'm not going to go out of my way to just fool in target him and kill him because I was like, you know, um, my dad had shot a buck. I had shot a buck. I'd already filled a tag. I was like, I, I, I don't have to go use my other tag. Like, it's just not I don't know. I could, but I don't have to, and so I was like, you know, if he if he walks in, I'll shoot him, but if not, I'm perfectly fine with letting him go till six and a half, and so, uh, and I really didn't have him regularly anyways. Um, I knew he was alive, but I didn't have him regularly, like hitting a food source late season, so I did hunt that late season, and I was targeting another deer, and I ended up seeing him, Caesar, across the field, like a few hundred yards away, not in the field that we would always get him in but another field um in the middle of the farm and um so I knew he was alive knew he was gonna make it um still was starting to throw me off because I'm like okay he's not doing what he's done in years past but it's okay because he's right here in the middle like he's gonna I mean more than likely going to make it the season and maybe something will happen at six and a half um like it's very <laughs> I know there's guys in Iowa and other places that have gigantic farms that that have deer that make it to six and a half often. It's very seldom for, for us cause we just don't have enough land for that. Um, and, but I, you know, this was the instance where I was like, you know what, he's going to make it to six and a half. He has a lot of potential to, to be just like a giant deer. Um, so let's see what happens. And so he ended up making it and I found his shed. I only found one of his sheds this past winter. Um, And it was, I mean, right in the very middle of the farm. And that was very reassuring. Um, Just like, it's like, okay, like he's kind of shifted. Like, I I feel like he's living right in the middle now for whatever reason. Um, But when I did pick up that shed, I was actually surprised. It was much smaller than I had anticipated. Um, And uh, yeah, I I was like, wow. So I wasn't too bummed out. I was like, this is great. Um, He'll have... uh, he'll have another year to grow potentially and get bigger. Um, he's just not, he's not that, not as big as we all thought he really was, which, you know, like I'd already hit on his body size was much smaller than most deer. And I guess that's why I thought he was a lot bigger than he was at five and a half.
1: Hmm. So the new middle of the farm range, he was living now. Um, Mm -hmm. was there a different bedding area that he, that he tended to be using? Was there anything different about that terrain there that you think maybe attracted him uh like describe to me this new zone he was in
2: so for the most part the middle of the farm there's like uh a, a lot of open terrain um basically like prairie/savanna slash savanna, openness that just has a lot of warm season grasses a lot of tall native species that are growing up it's like there's just great cover there great habitat um and i assume that's what drew, drew him in and so then the the destination food sources um, are the ag fields that I'm talking about. And they all pretty much are on the perimeters of the the farm. So the center of the farm, for the most part, is where all the great, the best habitat is, where, like, the bedding and all that would be. And then we have some food plots intermingled, and then we have staging plots that may go to these, um, to these destination food sources. And these ag fields, these destination food sources, aren't what we set up. That's just what was there when... When my dad bought the farm so that that's the reason that it's set up that way, um, which I'm fine with. I, I enjoy that like um, for the most part, because then it seems like, you know, the general beddings tends to be in the middle of the farm and then the deer move outward as the evening progresses.
1: That interior of all that grassy Savannah stuff sounds awesome. Did you guys make that or improve that or is that a natural pasture that just grew up after you guys bought it or how did that get there?
2: So um it was there, but um it was kind of a mixture between um some cool season like fescues and um some warm season native stuff that was there. But immediately that was one of the first few things that we did was start to burn it off. Um and then we've we've treated some um some invasive species in there to try to knock those back and then just basically help progress the the native habitat that's there. But for the most part, like we have not gone in and like planted any specific species within those areas. We've just helped promote them natively through, through fire. Really. That's about it. Okay.
1: Uh, This off season then 2022 spring, uh, did you have any other changes to habitat given like he's there again, you're hoping he's going to be this great big six and a half year old giant. Was there anything you did different from the habitat perspective or even i guess prep work too did you start setting any new stands or setting up blinds or anything different leading into that year when you're planning and setting the stage for this hunt after this deer
2: um not really we did treat um some invasive stuff which was like multifloral rows um throughout the timber but that wasn't specifically for him um but no actually i really didn't um you know, I, I tried my best to plant those, get those staging plots um, set up differently. Like the one staging plot that he had often used used in years past to enter that, that one ag field where I typically always get him. Um, I split it in half this year. So it was, it was all clover last year. This year I was like, all right, I'm going to try this differently. I'm going to split this thing in half. It's like an acre, acre and a half food plot. I'm going to split it in half and do brassicas on one side and then leave clover on the other. So then he has um, he really has a choice, whichever one he would like to hit or the deer would like to hit prior to going to that, that ag field. And, uh, that was about the only thing I did differently and it did not pan out well at all. Uh, <laughs> we had the driest year that we've had in a very, very long time. So, um, it changed things drastically. And, um, you know, I really didn't, I didn't have anything, too much differently that I that I had done this past off season. Um, I just based on my my previous knowledge. I'm thinking, all right, going into this year, I'm gonna, we're gonna have a great shot at him. And, and in hindsight, like I remember my dad and I talking about it. It was really just it was mainly focused. Our focus was for my dad to shoot him, to be honest, and um, because he he'd almost gotten an opportunity at him there um, last fall and and whatnot. And it is his farm, so. Like, I keep that in mind so it's like I don't we don't ever like argue or fight or anything like that or over um you know who gets to hunt water, or whatever um I obviously try to give him first dibs on stuff um since it, it you know wouldn't have it if it wasn't for him and my mom
1: so yeah um back to that staging plot real quick despite that not working out with the moisture um What are the, you've mentioned having several of these staging plots, is it, am I right to assume that when you say staging plot, this is the kind of plot that you are more often planning on hunting as they transition through to the destination? So if, if I'm right about that, how do you, or do you at all design them in such a way to make them more huntable?
2: Yeah. So you are right. It is a staging plot. So like for, for, um, them going to that destination food source, it's essentially set up to where they would, um, they would come out of their bedding area, they would hit this food plot, and then from there just walk right out of that basically into the, the destination food source and, and go out into that ag field. And in that instance, it's great. It's set up perfectly. So, like, if you don't end up getting a shot, um, most of the deer have already left this food plot and headed into their destination food source so you can get out of there without interfering um, with deer movement or spooking all the deer off. Um there's a road that goes along the Southern edge of it, like just a path for us to either drive a truck or, um, four wheeler, whatever you want to drive down that, um, to get to that ag field. That's the access. And right next to that is the food plot. And it's, it's kind of triangular shaped. And really that has to do with, um, the way the terrain lays. And that's the only flat portion of that area. Cause then it leads into like a hillside that goes upwards. And, um, so that's the reason that it's shaped that way. It's really the the flattest area where you could fit the most um, food in in that particular area, and so it's also set up perfectly to hunt with a north wind, where your wind is blowing obviously to the south, where the access where we're accessing from. So your wind is blowing right back to where you park your truck or whatever um, to get there, where you walk in from. Or you can kind of hunt it on a west wind where it's somewhat blowing out into the destination food source. But at that point, you're hoping that you're either going to get your shot um, at the animal that you're hunting um, or you're kind of you're kind of screwed for the most part because they're going to get past you. And then some other deer may get past you and you may end up spooking them all or whatever. So it's typically often it's it's ideally set up for a north or northwest wind.
1: Okay. um summer then you, 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 you know, you did your work, you planned your plots, did some burning, you've got your stuff out, you've got your stands ready. You've got trail cameras out in your usual locations. When you are thinking about the 2022 year coming up, the season coming up, I know you mentioned you never did get summer pictures of him. Um, but let's say we're still kind of middle of the summer. So you're not too worried about that yet. If I were to ask you at this point in the summer of 2022, what was Caesar's weakness? Like, what was the thing about him that you thought would lead to you getting a shot? Whether that be like a spot you thought he'd be vulnerable or a tendency or something you learned about him. Was there something that you had identified up to this point that you thought would be that silver bullet for you?
2: Pre-rut, absolutely. Um, I I thought I would have absolutely have my best chances at him um, pre-rut. Just because um, I... You know, I would I would get him early season and throughout the summer, but it was nothing that was like uh, super patternable. There was nothing consistent. I didn't I didn't have it like a, a defined game plan where I thought, all right, the season is opening September 15th. I'm going to have my best shot at killing him right here. I didn't I did not have that um, I it, up until I mean, even from the age of two and a half to six and a half, there was never a like a September where I would have been like, oh, yeah, he was so patternable then. I never had that so he was very sporadic so I thought you know what I'm getting him on scrapes very very consistently every year in October like late late October pre-rut like he's gonna be on a pattern he's just you know doing his thing you know setting his territory waiting for that first doe to come into heat and he you know that that's gonna be my best shot um and so that was really my my main game plan for him um going into
1: this past fall so Would you have avoided or was the game plan heading into the fall to to completely avoid his area until then? Or were you still going to try to hunt around there hoping he would show? And then, you know, if you didn't, you'd still have that late October, you know, in your back pocket.
2: Yeah. So my game plan with not having photos of him through the summer was was really not focusing on him because I was like, man, I have, you know, five or six cameras in that general area where where he's always been. If I don't have him by now over the the last two months, like he's not there. Like I'm very well, very well just confident that he's not, he's not, he's either dead or not on the farm, like not there. And so I I really didn't have a game plan for him then. And I wasn't going to hunt over there because there was nothing else anyways that I, that I wanted to shoot or, um, or of that age class, five and a half year old buck. So I was like, I'm, I'm not even going to waste my time with going over there. And I didn't um and so there was just one other deer that we were targeting and uh so i was i was spending my time on the other end of
1: the farm when i when i
2: was there to hunt
1: okay so you're hunting this other deer you kind of gave up on caesar uh what was was that is this is this something that you've experienced enough times now with a deer you're excited about disappearing that this was like ah well on to the next one keep on going or did this were you were you really disappointed or was this kind of like a this is just how it is?
2: I was disappointed for sure. Um there was there's one other deer that I can think of that um that made it to five and a half that I almost killed one year. Um just never ended up getting a shot at. And he you know, I picked up his sheds and everything, and then nothing. Never saw him ever again. And so I had that in the back of my mind, like, all right, well, that's kind of what just happened to Caesar. Don't I, you know, I I really don't have any closure, like I don't know, um, you know, I guess maybe he could have possibly been hit by a car or, you know, died from, from disease or EHD, something like that. Um, and I just, so yeah, I just, it it was, I was definitely, definitely bummed out, but I had pretty well just written it off, um, that he was gone. Um, other, I mean, it's not like I pulled my cameras or anything like that, but I was just like, you know, my focus was 100% elsewhere.
1: Yeah. All right. So we get to October and you're hunting another deer and then you wake up in the middle of the night, you check your trail cameras and he's back. Uh, you can't sleep. You're waiting for Chandler to get up in the morning to tell him, what did you do that next morning when you were awake and you were ready to figure something out? Did you immediately say, all right, forget the other buck. We gotta, we gotta figure out what Caesar's doing or what, what was the thought process and what did you do that next day?
2: the thought process did not change at all. So, um, because, <laughs> well, the thought process changed, but the game plan, the strategy did not change because he showed up on the camera right there in this quote, clo- not, not the clover plot where I had typically always gotten him. He was on the other end of the farm again. Well, well really where I had never, ever gotten him. Um, but I was, our, we were already planning on hunting there because this other buck was there and I was, you know, this was another buck that I really wasn't that big. probably like a, 140 inch deer. Um, nothing in comparison to Caesar, but I did not have pictures of this other deer. Um, in years past, he looked to be pretty giant bodied size, like an old deer that I don't know. And I just, I guess just happened to wander in and move into that area. Anyhow, that was the exact same camera that I got Caesar on in the middle of the night. And I'm like, we're already planning on going there. Um, not that morning, but that, that coming afternoon, like we're going to be there. Hopefully he's there. This is incredible. It's like, this ghost just appeared, um, you know, out of the blue and, uh, this is great. He, and he really, he didn't appear to have put on a whole lot Caesar. Um, but that, at that point it didn't matter. I mean, my mind was already made up anyways. Like we wouldn't, it wasn't going to change it anyways, even if he had gotten smaller, like it was more about the story and the age of the animal and just everything that had gone into it to be, you know, to, to want to shoot
1: this deer. So that next day or so did you, so you hunted that night, right? Correct, yeah. yeah. Okay, so that night, you go out to hunt this tree that you'd already been planning on hunting for the big-bodied 140. Mm-hmm. But now, Caesar's back. He's in the same zone. So that evening, when you sat up, or when you set up, did you have a thought in your mind about what you would do if the big-bodied new buck showed up at 25 <laughs> yards?
2: I, I wouldn't I wouldn't shoot him. Okay.
1: <laughs> so now it was Caesar or bust. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. And, and I also do have to keep... Uh, you know, make sure you guys know this. So I, I'd shown my dad right away. And, um, the next morning and he's like, you shoot him. And I'm like, I thought you wanted to shoot him. He's like, yeah, I do. But you know, you shoot him. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, okay. And so, I'm, you know, like in a good dad. Yeah. I'm like, I don't really want to do this. Like it's kind of his buck, you know, for the most part, um, to hunt. And, um, so we hunted there and, um, sure enough, he didn't show up. And I can't remember exactly what happened if, um, well, we, the wind shifted and we we're like, well, we're not going to hunt there anymore. And I think we went home um, after that. Well, like in the next few days, my dad had already, him and my mom had planned a vacation. And so they left and went out of town. And at that point, I'm like, all right, this deer's here. He's told me to shoot him. He's not even, he's clearly not able to hunt. He's going to be gone for over a week. I'm going to hunt this deer. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And uh, so that was the game plan moving forward. And um, I'll just get straight to it. Really, like shortly after that, I think I maybe got him one more time on that camera right after that. um, Was that
1: a daylight picture or still nighttime?
2: Nighttime. Yeah. We came back and I, I started hunting him there again. And while we were hunting there, he ended up, um, moving straight back into his, like his core area, uh, where he would, had always been like in years past, not the middle of the farm, but over on the, the end that he was, I was most familiar with him being and, uh, where everything was pretty much set up, like specifically for him. Um, he had moved over there. Um, and so I, I couldn't have been more excited cause I'm like, all right, he's back to his home turf. Like this is mid October, like. I feel like I've got him, you know, pretty well patterned like I, you know he granted he's only been there once. like based on everything I know leading up to this point in years past, like I feel like he's like settled in. There's really no other buck in that area that's gonna mess with him like he's he's top dog like he's Caesar he this is his spot like he's gonna he's gonna s- stick around here.
0: and you can find what you need in store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today, or visit us at o'reillyauto.com/meat eater. That's o'reillyauto.com/meat eater.
1: We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time: Seafoam motor treatment. because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. All right, so if, if I'm in a situation like this, and I've got this buck that showed back up, and I'm sitting there in the middle of the day trying to think about where I'm going to hunt the next or that evening. I am like looking at the wind direction. Of course, I'm looking at the temperature. I'm thinking about, okay, you know, the conditions, right. Is the wind, right. And then I'm trying to make like the best guess of like, oh, well, he could be betting in this specific spot maybe. And he might be betting though in this little corner over here. So then I'm trying to like go back and forth between like which one of these possible bedding areas he might be in and then i'm thinking about well with the wind direction where's the best place i could hunt based on where i think he's going to go and and then i'm debating like this trailer this trailer this food source or this food source like i'm going through all these million different things um what does that process look like for you when you are there like the day of the hunt and let's let's hypothetically say the next hunt you had when he came back to his core and now you're like okay he's back in the spot i'm comfortable with can you give me like the detail nitty gritty as much as you remember about how you were choosing where to hunt that first night back in the core area?
2: Yeah. So, um, with it being mid October, I was like, all right, weather patterns, like looking at the forecast ahead. Like I'm thinking like, all right, I'm going to play it safe. It's not, it's not like, well, oh, let's just dive right into the woods and try and kill him right where, yeah. you know, close to where he's betting, Like, let's just hunt these food sources in hopes that he comes out there. Um, and I, I do need to keep, um, reiterate, like, so when I did get photos of him over there, it was right at last light in that staging plot. Um, so I'm like, he's, he's hit the staging plot right at last light. Like he's pretty much killable right there. Like let's play it safe and hunt right in that er- that general area and, um, and try to kill him there. Cause it's not very intrusive. Um, you know, he just got back to there for the, that I can, at least from what I can tell, um, I don't want to go in and blow him out of there. So we'll, we'll play it somewhat safe. And so that was really, that was the game plan. But I'm looking ahead at the weather and I'm seeing like, all right, for October, there's a pretty good cold front coming. Like our odds are very, very good that he'll show up into this food plot in daylight. If he's already done it prior to this cold front hitting, like odds are likely he's going to be there in daylight after this, this front passes. And so um, that was really our game plan in the next coming days ahead.
1: So walk me through what happened on those, that, that next hunt or several hunts leading into what ultimately happened.
2: We went in and hung a stand, um, right there, basically intercepting him as he would enter that, that ag field right off the side of that, that staging plot. I could see the staging plot to my left. I think we had a northwest maybe a northwest wind and so i'm like all right we'll 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 hunt off to the side of it here where like there's a path we, the path that we drive in like leads straight into the field um the ag field and um like i said we can see into the staging plot there's a scrape right there a giant scrape i put a camera on it as we're hanging the stand uh, i'm like all right we'll hunt here um this or tomorrow evening and then like the next few days because we have the right wind and everything as this front passes so we set the camera there this is just a regular this isn't a cell camera anything. but like you know you could clearly tell that the bucks were just like annihilating the scrape like i'll have a good shot at him if he if he comes to the scrape or like right enters the field right here like he's in range and so that was our game plan moving
1: forward and um two quick questions before you go further yeah. first how do you get out of a spot like this? Um, because I know you mentioned like where the staging plot, hopefully they've moved off to these destination food plots before you leave. But mm-hmm. I feel like I also remember you saying that these, these destination food sources on the outside of the property. So how do you get past them to get out to the road or wherever you are? Is there a back way you can get out or how do you handle that exit?
2: Yep. So like, this is actually, this field is in a Valley. Um, and so where we park, is on the top of the hill uh, a little ways away. Like you can't see it from the field or you can't see the field from the road or anything like that, but, um, we're hunting it with a North wind. So you're walking straight North or West wind, and you're pretty much walking straight into the wind to get to this. So there is potential that you could have deer behind you. Um, him specifically, I didn't believe was coming from that direction. So I wasn't too worried about it. We had some does come in from behind us and they actually did not spook or anything. Um, they came right through and, um, and walked by, but yeah, that's our, our plan of attack. When we went in to hang this stand, we accessed it the exact same way we hunt and everything. You're not you're not jumping any deer. You're walking down the road that you um that you access the field with anyways. So you're walking down that, that road anyways. Then you peel off and you go into the woods a little bit to get to the stand. Um, and in that area where we peel off of our our inter interior road to get to that stand, it's about 50, 60 yards or so. And so we, hang, we hung the stand, hung the camera, and on our way out, Chandler and I both used our boots to clear like every single leaf off of that, our walk in. Like, so it's just bare ground um, walking in and out to make it even quieter um, for really just for access on the way in. And if you don't end up getting a shot, you can potentially hopefully get out. And my theory, like on this farm, particularly, there's a decent sized deer density, um, decent sized deer herd. So there's quite a few deer. Um, it's, it's very tough to get out without spooking deer, but if it's not the, you know, if it's not the particular deer you're hunting, I'm not that worried about it usually. And my like way of really getting around that, I feel like, I don't know if it's like, it's not foolproof or anything, but oftentimes when I'm wanting to get out and like, I have a few deer in front of me, I'll end up playing like, uh, like a coyote howl on my phone (laughs) Mm -hmm. sounds funny, but pretty much every night at dusk, like the coyotes all sound off. So it's, it's a normal occurrence. And, you know, I'm not saying that it's, it's the best absolute answer to spook deer off, but it seems to work well for me. And, um, fortunately that first night, um, I didn't have to spook any off when we, we didn't end up getting a shot. Um, so we were able to just climb down quickly. We left everything as far as our cam, not our cameras, but like our tree arms, uh, everything else um, in the tree. So we do not tear anything down. We literally just grab our packs, throw the cameras in there and climb right out as quick as we can and leave. Just like most normal hunters would. So um, we were able to get out of there very quickly that first night without um, spooking anything that we were aware of.
1: Yeah. Now how about picking the tree? Um, I'm always curious when you're picking the tree. One of the things I'm always constantly debating is this, this kind of give and take between, picking the spot that's the closest to range to the perfect place where I think the deer is most likely to come through versus, you know, trying to pick a tree that maybe is got a little more cover or is downwind of more of the deer activity, you know, very, at least, you know, sometimes you find the perfect tree that has it all, but mm-hmm. most situations you, you have to kind of make choices. You can't get all five of the perfect criteria you want. You might have to do three out of the five or whatever it is. Um, yeah. So can you kind of tell me first off, you know, what did this specific tree setup look like? How did you pick this tree? Why was this the tree the, the place to be? And then secondly, more generically, you know, if you had to choose between a tree that is in easy range of the very best like crossing of trails or whatever it might be in the scrape, or pick a tree that's a little bit further away but has better cover, better wind, which of those more generically would you pick?
2: So wind is always the first, um, the first factor that I always weigh on. And with this particular tree, like the wind set up pretty dang good for it. Um, with this being a valley, I'm always concerned with the wind swirling. And I, I was pretty confident with a northwest wind that it wouldn't because it would, in my mind, theory wise, I'm thinking, all right, this, this tree line um, runs east to west. If the wind is coming in out of the northwest, it's going to kind of hit this tree line and carry off towards my southeast, which is where some deer might potentially come. But for the most part, that is not where the bulk of the deer are coming from. They're coming from the northwest. So I'm not, I'm thinking like, all right, this is going to be perfect for the wind direction. Um, I shouldn't, I definitely don't think I'm going to spook him. And if I spook anything, it's just going to be a few does or something like that. I'm not, not concerned. I think it's great. It's set up perfect. Then, um, so that, that was my main Factor that I'm factoring in secondly like this group of trees was like some cottonwoods and maybe like some um I don't know there's like some birch trees in there as well that like kind of stick out a little bit into the field just a little bit uh, maybe like five ten yards further than the rest of the tree line for whatever reason and so it kind of like positions you outward a little bit into the field for a closer shot um where the where it kind of pinches down where these deer are entering this field and then that's right where that scrape is so i'm like it, it's just the perfect setup um the cottonwoods are tall trees yes they're pretty barren um just because they don't throw out a ton of branches and they're they're uh, the trunks you know are pretty straight going upwards but i was like we can get up there a ways and i'm not going to get out on that lead cottonwood that's sitting out right on the edge i'm going to use it as a sense of cover and we're going to hang in the tree that's right with the cottonwood right behind it and so that was in the video you can see that's exactly what we did like we used that that one in front of me as I like cover, I hung my bow on it. I could kind of like, feel like I could kind of get in line with it. So my body, like my um, my outline lines up with the tree well um, and I'm not sticking out too much. And that's another thing that I look at as well is I'll, oftentimes um, when I'm hanging a stand, I'll go out to where I believe I'm gonna potentially get my shot at and look back at the tree for my uh, my backdrop. And in this instance, My backdrop was fine. Well, Chandler was a little bit higher than I, um, because that's how we set up for our our camera setups. Um, So he's kind of like shooting over my shoulder or my head a little bit. He was a little bit skyline. He didn't have the backdrop that I did. Um, And so thankfully he was even, he was set up kind of behind the tree that we're hung in. So he had not only the one in front of me, but also the tree that's behind me as his cover as well. So he, He used that to hide behind some too, but um, we did in fact figure out that like some of these deer were were spotting him or me just because we didn't have the best backdrop. But um, thankfully with the wind that we had, I think we had a 10, 15 mile per hour wind with all the leaves and branches kind of moving around, it it ended up hiding us well and breaking us up. Um, But yeah, really that the positioning of this one, being able to get up high, having a good backdrop in that tree in front of me, Um, Great wind and then positioning close to that scrape and the trails entering the field. It it seemed to be the, you know, the absolute perfect
1: setup. Next question then. Did you get any more cell pictures of him between the time you got that first picture of him back in his core area and when you killed him?
2: I believe I did. I think I got one in the middle of the night of him hitting that, that same scrape on the, the cell cam. Um, that really just like, you know, gave me reassurance like, okay, he's, uh, he's there. So, you know, I mean, I, I believe he's settled in. Um, okay. I'm looking back right now actually I, as I'm sitting. Yeah, I did. I got him the next, the next, um, early, early morning at like one AM. Um, so I knew that he had, you know, most likely settled into there. And then I had also set, so on that scrape in front of me, I had put a trail camera on um, video mode, which I wasn't going to check. I was like, I'm not checking that. Like, I'm not going to walk over there. Um, it's just there for my reference. Like just to know if he's hitting that scrape, I'll check it later on. Well, after I ended up killing him, I checked it and he was all over that thing, um, all the time throughout the night. So, but anyway, anyhow, yeah, I just, I was still very, very, very confident that he was in the area. I was like, hes I don't think he's going to leave.
1: What do you think you would have done? I know this is, you know, 2020 hindsight, but if, so let's say you hunted that spot that first night when, in which you didn't see him. If that night you were to have gotten a picture of him back in the middle of the farm in the other spot he'd been at, you know, over the last period of time, would that have changed your plan at all, do you think? Or would you have still stuck with the scrape set up Because you liked everything else about it.
2: I would have stuck with it. Just um, given the fact of like his history. And um, there's been plenty of times where I've gotten photos of deer there in the middle of the farm one evening. And then the following evening, I get him on not like the complete opposite end of the farm, but down where he was at. So like it's probably like mm, I would say like a half a mile to that area down there and really like. I remember when we first started hunting this place. I'm like, oh no! Like, there's a deer herd here in the middle, and there's a deer herd down there. Well, not really. Like, it's not that that's not far for a deer to travel at all. Like, and this farm has really opened up my um, vision of how far deer actually travel. They're all different. They'll all their movements and careers are different from one another. But as far as like their traveling goes, they travel much further than I had a. Um, I had ever anticipated and really given them credit to travel. And then when you really think about it, us as humans, like if we want to go walk a half a mile, that's like really nothing. Like yeah. walking a half a mile is not that far at all for a deer to go a half a mile. It's like, <laughs> I mean that
1: that's nothing at all to them. Yeah. Yeah. So true. So, uh, what happened next?
2: So yeah, we, we ended up hunting him again the following evening. And, um, that cold front had one hundred percent completely passed, and like we had pretty steady wind. it was like a fifteen mile per hour wind, but given we were down in the valley, it's a little bit less um and i I want to say it was in the thirties um for mid october that was that's pretty chilly for me, yeah, uh, at least for us in missouri and um he came out gosh an hour before um sunset into that that staging plot, we could see him over there and Given we had such a terrible drought, like the brassicas that I had planned were not really there, but something had, I mean, they were there, I guess, because the deer were were hitting that and that's what he was hitting. Like He he transitioned and moved over to the clover right next to it for a little bit. But for the most part, he was sticking to that brassica plot that um, didn't come in very well. And the other deer were as well. He ended up kind of feeding off where we couldn't see him because we're kind of looking, we're looking through some trees. Where, we're, where we can see him at and we can't see him all that well but we're getting bits and pieces he might be in an opening and then he kind of goes away and then it appeared that he kind of left um, we had some deer just get like really skittish and spook off of the ag field because of the wind like it was just blowing and they just got nervous and left which kind of domino affected to him and i'm like all right it's over he's probably leaving and he was he, would, he watched the deer spook off, stood there and stood there for like five minutes just watching everything, head up, like looking around, kind of just scanning the whole area and then he finally calmed down. That, happened, that ended up happening twice and then um, he fed off and it looked like he went up to where that cell camera was at and um, was possibly hitting the scrape. We couldn't quite tell where we were at and ended up, um, we thought, maybe leaving and then probably... Right at, yeah, a little after sunset, um, some deer kind of trickled in from that that staging plot, and then Chandler was able to see him kind of coming back in that staging plot. I'm like, all right, like, he's coming, Um, and uh, he was at, like, 80 at that point, I believe, and then he, like, another younger deer and a three-year-old came in, and we're kind of, like, one of them hit the scrape, I think it was a three-year-old, and then they worked in, and that was kind of, like, the... deciding factor for him I think he knew that other buck was hitting that scrape and just you know they're starting to get territorial that was when that was really just what drew him right in and uh, he came through walked behind my camera did not go down the the trail leading right to that scrape didn't even hit the scrape went right around it like a few like a few yards and stood right there in front of it and was standing there just looking around and like ate a little bit like ate some corn in the field there and then um that was like He's at 26 yards and that's, that's where I shot him at.
1: Describe to me your self-talk in those moments as he was coming out of the woods, heading out into the field and you realized I'm getting a shot. Uh, Were you just like in autopilot locked in? You weren't thinking about anything except for just, you know, wait until he stops, draw back, anchor, do the thing. Or were were you freaking out and trying to like calm yourself down or, or anything like that?
2: So when he first stepped out an hour before sunset, um, I you know you first see a deer, especially when you're you're hunting, the one that you're hunting. Um, you like all of us do, you you immediately have that adrenaline rush. And when that hit me, it, like I said it was cold, um for that time of year, the wind's blowing. I thought I dressed warm, apparently not warm enough. I already had that little shiver going on from being a little bit chilly. Mm -hmm. Well, then you add in that adrenaline. I had like a massive shiver going on and (laughs) I was so pumped up. I was like, I told Chandler, um, afterwards, I'm like, if he would have came in when we first saw him, I don't know if I would have been able to hold together because I had that combination of being nervous and cold at the same time I was shaking like a leaf. So, um thankfully he gave me well over an hour to calm myself gather my thoughts and um, by the time he came in i was all i had in my mind was shot opportunity just wait for the perfect moment stay focused think about what you're doing um you know you've ran this through your mind a hundred times prior to this like just focus on what's going on and and you know shot angle and shot opportunity and that's that's what happened and so thankfully like the way he entered he entered a a little closer than i than that scrape um for whatever reason and just barely slightly quartered away if not broadside um stopped right there at 26 yards and um you know i had drawn he's relaxed i you know i i asked chandler to make sure that he's got him which he did and then um you know just like you practice it was that's really all it was was just uh it it turns into that repetition and mental game of uh, what we practice for.
1: Yeah. And so you get the shot, he runs off, and he he dropped in sight. Is that right?
2: Yeah, so he ran right at the edge of the field. Um, He had absolutely no idea because, like, I didn't have to stop him or anything. He just stopped himself, and um, he had zero clue I was there. Um, So when I shot him, he turned and ran, and you can just see blood starting to pour out immediately. He just, you know, bounds off and stops and you know, stops to look back and looking around and then it's just the classic, like, you know, just kind of stumble around and fall over. And, you know, that's like when that whole moment of relief comes on. Um, in in that very instance, like I'm thinking, wow, this is great. This is incredible. It's a, it's a really bittersweet moment, but like in the back of my mind, I'm like, man, <laughs> my dad wanted this deer. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> you know, like you have a little sense of guilt. and. um, yeah it, it it was it was incredible it, and then to be honest i say bittersweet because like you have had all those years of that like it turns into far more than just shooting a deer you're like man like the whole everything leading up to this point um there were so many different emotions going on that now it's it's over for him like the whole thing's over and he's laying there dead you're like wow i just ended that like <laughs> It's great, but like story's over
1: (laughs) It sometimes leaves you a little empty afterwards. You want to, you want to keep going almost.
2: It does. It's a weird, weird, weird feeling. Um, but you know, thankfully there's more deer to come in our future. Um, we hope so.
1: Yeah. So if you were to look back over this four years or or whatever the total end up being, um, and you were to think through all the decisions you made, the, work you did, the changes you made to setups or habitat or the things you did just in the days leading up to that hunt or, or anything. If you had to write down a piece of paper, three things that led to you killing that deer, like the, the top three somethings, decisions or factors that led to that deer showing up at 26 yards and you getting a shot, what would you write down on that piece of paper? Um,
2: One, I would write, man it was like divine intervention so like god man like i said a prayer while i was in the tree like i feel like that had that had to be part of it, a very large major factor of it um otherwise i wouldn't even be on this earth if it wasn't for him but um yeah. that was one two for sure weather like without a doubt if that weather pattern was not there like there's no way um i just don't think that it would have happened the way it did like the pressure was right the wind um you know, like that front had passed. So it was cool and everything like deer activity was just off the charts that, that evening, um, there were deer everywhere moving. And, um, so that was a very big deciding factor. And then, um, the habitat and food, I would say were the number three for sure. Like just being able to have, you know, having the way that it's all set up with the, the bedding, the the staging plot and destination food source all being right there. Like it was like the stage was set perfectly for him to, to do what he did. And, and, and the other deer as well. Um, just for all those things to come together. I think that that those would be the three deciding factors.
1: Do you, do you feel like you learned anything from this deer? Is there anything that, you know, now you can look back and say, you know what? He taught me this. I learned a
2: lot. I've learned a lot over this, this entire fall. Um, I think, you know, having pretty much 10 years to hunt this farm, it's changed drastically when we first got it. Um, We were just following like massive kill off, I feel like from EHD. So there really wasn't a good age structure at the time. There was still a heavy deer presence, but a lot of does. And I feel like a lot of that's gotten into check. It's changed um, quite a bit with that habitat improvements. um, I feel like it's actually given the deer more variety. And so they've kind of their patterns have changed. I feel like they've kind of spread out, if you will. Like they don't necessarily all take the same exact travel corridors they always used to, to, um, take. So with things changing, um, like that, it's, it's changed my mindset. It changed my viewpoints each year. Um, and then going into this year, you know, you, th- we, I thought I had this deer like completely figured out, um, thinking he's living, Oh, he's right here in the middle of the farm. Like this is, this is perfect. Like it's, You know like i don't think he leaves the farm much at all well clearly he had to have because i didn't have him um early on and i think the majority of that had to do with how dry it was us going through a drought i don't know where he went i don't know what he was doing but he was i don't believe he was there and i think a lot of it just had to do with how dry it was the vegetation um, water sources all that like yes we have water there but that doesn't mean that he's always using those ponds and whatnot or lakes whatever to to drink from. Maybe he he uses a bigger river or stream elsewhere to to drink from, um, or whatever. Um, just something changed drastically. And it wasn't just him either that I noticed, like overall, um, it just seemed like this summer there were far less deer, um, summering on the farm. And I, it has to do with the drought, I would think.
1: Is there any mistake that you could pinpoint that maybe you made throughout this hunt over the years is there anything you can look back on and say man if i hadn't done that this might have been a shorter story or or anything like that
2: um not really in that aspect like i like i was saying earlier like i i've (laughs) i've gotten pretty soft when it comes i feel like over the years with when it comes to like killing a deer like i'm I'm always wanting to like see them go another year so i don't really think of them think of it as like a mistake necessarily now if now, if he made it to seven and a half, and I'm not saying that I want a deer to always get to six and a half, but like right. starting to get to seven and a half, eight and a half, something like that, it's like all right, like he's gonna he's going to get past his prime. But like just being able to see what can happen the following year, I wasn't too bummed about certain the way things turned out. Certainly, but um, I guess the one mistake that I can think back to that we for sure made like my dad should have been able to get a shot at this deer at five and a half, but we did not clear like a branch that was clearly in the way. Um, and that is one thing that I need to be better about, um, for sure. In the off season is going in and checking, um, shooting lanes more often. I, I used to be really, really good about that. Um, but I've kind of put it on the wayside to be honest over the years. And, uh, you know, then it comes to be the rut and I'm like, all right, we'll go hunt that stand. It's like, Oh yeah, I haven't cleared lanes out of there in like two years. Um, yeah, sure, whatever. And that was a classic example of why you didn't get a shot. So, that would definitely, I would say, be a mistake right there. But um, as far as like, I don't know, I, I really wasn't too bummed about him. He, he was definitely his biggest um, at six and a half. And um, it was just cool to see the story go that long. But um, they don't typically often go that long. So I don't know. I don't I wouldn't say there were too many mistakes. It's just it was fun to, to watch the progression of this animal through yeah.
1: the year. Yeah, that's, that's pretty awesome to get to see that over such a long period. And, and then to have the perfect ending to wrap it all up, like you said, that that's rare and uh special when it happens. So
2: yeah, very seldom, Yeah, you know, like you said, very rare, like most times they end up, I don't know, getting shot by someone else or whatever disease or hit by a car or something like that.
1: Yeah. So, so Sean, give us, give folks who haven't seen the film yet, then uh, the plug on where they can watch this whole thing and uh, see it play out in real life.
2: Yeah. So it, um, right now the only place that you can watch it is on our YouTube channel. Um, just Heartland bow hunters, our YouTube channel. And then it's called the story of Caesar. Um, Sean's biggest buck to date. So you can find it right there on our YouTube.
1: Heck of a deer. Uh, What is the plan with the YouTube channel? You guys are putting out a lot more stuff there. It's a lot more uh, like full feature length, kind of even bigger than a regular TV episode. You guys going to keep doing that? Is there still going to be stuff on regular cable? Can you not talk about this yet? (laughs) I can talk
2: about it, Yep. So we will continue to be on the outdoor channel as well as MOTV, which is owned by the outdoor channel. And um, we will also continue to be placing stuff regularly on our YouTube channel as well just because um, we feel like our audience that is on the outdoor channel is different than our audience on YouTube and we've kind of neglected our YouTube I would say over the the, the really the, this, the lifespan of it um, we've had it I think for probably almost 10 years and we have not put a lot of our original content on there. So what you're seeing on the outdoor channel is in fact different edits than you'll see on our YouTube channel. Um, our YouTube channel we do not have restrictions like we do on TV where it has to be 22 minutes long on our YouTube channel. We can we can tell the story as it is, however long we think it needs to be or however long the story was. Um, and that's the beauty of it. And we can, um, I mean, it, it, that that lives there for free as well. So anyone and anyone that has access to the Internet can go and watch it. And so that's Man, the reason that it's there.
1: How painful is it going to be to have to edit down this story to just 22 minutes? <laughs> Um, for the TV episode
2: yeah I think it'll be
1: uh,
2: yeah it'll be tough Um, I guess it depends on how you like to retain your your content Um, I guess if you you don't like to watch 50 minute films um, (laughs) then maybe you should watch it on TV but uh, where it's 22 minutes but um, you know I think based on the feedback we've received from the 50 minute one um, everyone's really enjoyed the length of it just because there was enough content to tell that story in 50 minutes but Yeah. yeah it'd be
1: tough I feel like as as the editor, that's going to be very difficult to be like having to slash this and slash this. And, and you're like, oh, but that's so important. And that was so important. Yeah.
2: I'm glad I'm not the one cutting it down to 22 minutes.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just uh, just plug your ears, close your eyes and just let it go.
2: <laughs> yeah. So but that will be the beauty. So like if you see the 22 minute version on TV and you've never
1: seen the full length
2: 50 minute one, I mean. I would encourage people if they, if they see that and they want to see the full length and to go right over to our YouTube and watch it there as well. Yeah.
1: It's good stuff. I'm glad you guys are putting more out there. Um, my, my son actually, my, we're getting old here. So I've got a almost five year old son and he's become a big fan of the YouTube channel and, uh, (laughs) particularly (laughs) likes it when the kids are in the episodes. So like, uh, Skylar having his, I think his son shot one in an episode and, you know, like having the boys come out to help along in different things. He's always like, yeah, show me a kid one, dad. Let's see a kid one. So, <laughs> so more of that and my son Everett will be stoked.
2: <laughs> that's awesome. Dude. Yeah. that uh, That's really cool. It's, it's wild. Like you just said, we are getting old. My, I have a three and a half year old and then a five month old and it's, I already see it because Mike's kids are even older than your son and you're oldest and like, it's just wild. Like yeah. how fast it changes. And I mean, just like you said, you know, little, what 12 years ago, 13 years ago, we were, we were at ATA and you were sleeping in the back of your car. And- <laughs> <laughs>
1: Life is pretty crazy. It is. Well, uh, man, I, I appreciate you sharing this, telling your story. Um, as you know, I've always been a fan of your guys' work and you keep on doing great stuff. So, um, um, I'm, I'm happy for you guys and proud to know you and excited to see what comes next.
2: Likewise, man. Thank you very much for having me on here. I
1: truly appreciate
2: it. And uh, you've definitely earned a name for yourself as well. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. So It's an honor to be on here.
1: Thanks, Thank man. We've, we've both been fortunate. That's for sure. All right. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. Thanks for tuning in. If you want more, be sure to follow me over on Instagram at wired to hunt. That's where you're going to see different updates for my hunting life from the outdoors Fishing stuff, reading stuff, public lands, conservation, hunting, all sorts of good stuff like that. That's where I share things that are a little bit outside of the norm for the Wired Hunt podcast. So check that out. Check out the Meat Eater website. Check out the Meeteater.com slash Wired for all of our Wired to Hunt articles. We've got lots of great content there coming from folks like myself, Tony Peterson, Alex Gilstrom, Tony Hansen, uh Bo Martonic, all sorts of really, really accomplished whitetail hunters sharing their thoughts lessons and ideas in the written format too so check it out thank you for being here i appreciate being a part of this community and until next time
0: stay wired to hunt i'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill meat from those organs are among the most nutrient rich foods on the planet